cost me a number of friendships. Uh, specifically, one you know very important one to me was do you remember the Jeff Durgan? Um, yeah, Jeff was a defender with the Cosmos, a young kid who had come to the team you know very very similarly as as I did, and his involvement with the national team too was following a similar path. And uh, you know, and and Jeff and I were good friends. Well, Jeff made the decision to go to Team America, and I didn't. And he couldn't understand why. And to this day, um, Jeff and I have never, never reconciled our differences. And, you know, you think that's silly. I mean, we're a bunch of old men now. But, uh, you know, Jeff felt that it was the right thing to do and that, you know, and, and he jumped on board. And I, you know, shared with him, as I did everybody else, I didn't think it was the right thing to do. Didn't think it was the right thing for the league or the sport or, you know, the, the players at that time. And, uh, you know, and as I say, it, it, it you know, has a, a toll that's, you know, lasted this long and, uh, you know, and, you know, it's too bad. Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your host, Tim Hanlon. Why, thank you, Corey Coates, our professional announcer guy. Hi there. My name's Tim Hanlon. This is our little podcast we call Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast at that focused on what used to be in professional sports. If this is your first time joining us, thank you for giving us a try. And uh, if you're a repeat customer, uh, we question your sanity, but we welcome you back as well. Uh, Today, we are uh, honored and privileged to be joined by a U.S. Soccer Hall of Famer, uh, by the name of Rick Davis. And uh, those of you who uh, remember the 1978 and beyond New York Cosmos of the old North American Soccer League, uh, you will remember Rick Davis as uh, the pioneering American player uh, to break onto the scene amongst all those uh, international superstars on that team and uh, arguably being uh, the first of uh, a generation of uh, American stars to truly break through and play at the highest level consistently, not only in this country, but on the world stage. Uh, some great stories and some uh, even wistful remembrances uh, from our guest Rick Davis uh, in a couple of minutes. Uh, Cosmos uh, outdoor soccer, uh, Cosmos indoor soccer. We talk about uh, some of his exploits in the MISL with the St. Louis Steamers, uh, the Tacoma Stars, and uh, certainly interestingly, uh, his time as, uh, as a member of the U.S. national team. Uh, both on the Olympics and uh, the World Cup uh, preparation stages. Uh, Rick Davis has kind of done it all and kind of did it before most uh, in the American game did so. And uh, his is a story to uh, to enjoy in a couple of seconds uh, here on the show. Before we get to uh, our conversation with Rick, I want to remind you that we're uh, once again uh, sponsored by the good folks at Audible. And uh, you know that Audible is the premier provider of digital audiobooks with more than 180,000 titles to choose from and just about every genre that you can shake a stick at. Uh, I don't know why you'd be shaking a stick at any genre of books uh, for that matter. But uh, if you do see any genres out there that you like, guess what? Audible's probably got uh, at least a couple of dozen titles uh, devoted to it. Uh, you'll also know that Audible titles, of course, play on just about every device you can think of, iPhone and Kindle and Android, more than 500 at last count, which basically ensures that you can listen to uh, any audiobook from Audible at any time and anywhere. Uh, and of course, uh, if you want to try it out for free, here's a great opportunity to do so. Just go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats uh, for your free 30-day trial of Audible, uh, including your first free audiobook download. Uh, gratis, free, you know, on the company, on us. Have one, why not? audibletrial.com slash goodseats. 
That's the place to get your free audiobook download and your free 30-day trial. You can cancel at any time. And uh, I, I doubt that uh, you will not enjoy at least listening to uh, at least one audiobook uh, on us and uh, in giving the service a try. That's audibletrial.com slash goodseats for your free audiobook download and 30-day free trial. Okay, we will waste not a minute more by now segueing to our great conversation with U.S. Soccer Hall of Famer Rick Davis here on the podcast. So where do we find you today? You are in the uh, the middle, literally, almost uh, literally diametrically in the middle of the United States, right? Where are we, uh, where are we talking to you uh, from today? Yeah, we are actually in Ellsworth, Kansas, which is uh, our home. And as you say, Tim, we are literally, if you were to throw a dart at uh, a map of the United States and tried to hit the very center of it, um, Ellsworth isn't too far from there. And so uh, it's, it, it is our home, has been for about the last uh, 10, 12 years. And uh, we'll uh, we'll make reference to this later during the course of the uh, conversation. But uh, your uh, your chief uh, business right now is what for folks happening to be uh, in the neighborhood when they're driving by? Well, there, there's actually two. Uh, the one I think you're referencing is we became restaurant owners about uh, five and a half, six years ago, despite all of the discouraging comments from friends of ours. <laughs> uh, but we own uh, a restaurant called the Ellsworth Steakhouse, which uh, a big part of uh, you know my wife and I is community. And uh, that's why we aimed at what we did. And that's why we ended up opening a place because we're a, a very small rural town in, uh, you know, in farmland in Kansas. And uh, our community is about 2,500 people. Um, and, uh, you know, we are enjoying it. It's a ton of work. If anybody out there is in the restaurant business, I'm sure they would understand me saying that. But uh, it's something that we've done now for better part of six years and, uh, and are still enjoying it. That's fantastic. And uh, we'll reference your your uh, your other uh, uh, business as well. But uh, you might want to maybe give us a a sneak peek of that, too, especially for young soccer players out there like my daughters. Absolutely. Yeah. Real real quick story is that, uh, you know, through soccer's, you know, global uh, attraction, uh, we came across uh, some people that happened to be in the Ellsworth area. Um, They were here for a wind farm project, uh, actually putting one in. Uh, the gentleman that uh, oversaw the project was a big soccer person, um, lives up in Wisconsin. He has twin boys that had been playing, and sure enough, we connected and got talking, and out of that came the idea of kind of formalizing something that we've done for years, and that is um, one of the many games that we play using our feet that are adapted from other sports, uh, in this case, uh, ping pong or tennis. And so we created a game called foot pong or a product called foot pong, and uh, it's a great little tiny game that, uh, you know, can be played by just about anybody. And it's a wonderful way for kids to sort of cross train and have an opportunity to develop their skills uh, outside of the fact that it's just a real fun game. So we started a company called Football. That was the, the short answer. <laughs> and uh, and Footpong is spelled to F-U-T as in Tom, P as in Paul, O-N-G, footpong.net. Uh, and uh, we'll that, call it out. That is we'll, correct. We'll call it out a little later in the show as well. And uh, we always love to... Uh, support whatever uh, our guests are doing now versus uh, some of the memories we dredge, dredge up from uh, from their past, which I think we're going to kind of segue into now. Uh, if you uh, if you're sitting down and, and ready for it, Rick, uh, we appreciate it. I am ready to go. Always uh, enjoyable to talk about, uh, you know, the past, uh, great memories for me. 
Well, I, I, I think the, uh, the best place to kind of uh, start is, uh, is to give sort of our listeners, especially those uh, that we haven't really discussed much about uh, the cosmos in particular, but for whatever reason, that's kind of one of the impetuses for this, uh, for this show, My Childhood Memories and all the other things that came along with oh, NASL franchises and other sports teams and leagues that sort of came and went. But I'm really intrigued, and I didn't even know this when I was uh, growing up watching you at, at Giant Stadium, was... Um, what was your path to getting to this uh, admittedly uh, bizarre combination of worldwide talent uh, in this white hot moment in American soccer? How did you get to the cosmos? Well, I mean, it was kind of a, you know, a, a long path, if you will, in that um, it starts out with a, you know, a young kid, that being myself in Southern California, um, who grew up in you know, middle class America uh, and much at the time. Um, the sports that were available to kids were baseball, football, basketball, tennis, golf, um, just about everything but soccer. Soccer hadn't really found its way as much as a youth sport anyway in the United States, but for some of the larger ethnic communities around the country, such as Los Angeles, New York, places like that. Well, as it was, uh, there was a youth program that uh, was in its second year uh, that came to my town, Claremont, which is a suburb of Los Angeles. And, uh, and it was called AYSO, American Youth Soccer Organization. And uh, basically it was this notion of let's give kids the opportunity to play. Um, and uh, my, my exposure to soccer actually started when my father, who was a physician, was given some tickets to the closed circuit broadcast of the 1966 World Cup. Hmm. Uh, he had a patient that couldn't go and he knew that, uh, you know, that I love sports and it would be a fun thing for him and I to do so. We went down to the forum and sat inside the forum, uh, you know, which, of course, people know is where the Kings and the Lakers used to play. But uh, um, we watched this this game uh, in 1966, which just had this wonderful, um, you know, contest between England and Germany. And much as I was passionate about other sports, that sport, soccer, that game grabbed me then. And I became just passionate about playing soccer as I did the other sports. And so the path was. Uh, my very first coach was a, an English immigrant who taught us about the passion of the game. My next coach was an Italian immigrant, um, and he taught us about, uh, you know, some of the disciplines and the flair that could be a part of the game. But, uh, you know, again, very much a history or a culture in the sport. Uh, my next coach was a German immigrant who, again, was back to the discipline and the structure and, uh, you know, and things like that. And so, I, I reference all of that because all of these individuals were very significant in me, this kid growing up in, you know, any town in America, um, becoming very excited about the prospects of potentially, you know, playing at a higher level in soccer. Um, when I went to high school, this is where my, my uh, you know, Italian coach was, and uh, he was the one that really got me pretty seriously thinking about trying to um, you know, go at into the into the sport at a higher level, whether that was collegiately or even you know semi-professionally or professionally, and um, that's where I, I met a gentleman at the time by the name of Walt Chiswick. Now I met him because I w was attending a coaching course, um, and uh, and he was the everybody back uh, you know in those days. He was the national team coach, the Olympic team coach. He was the director of coaching. Um, you know, now we have a variety of people that hold those positions, but I think the path that had me meet him is really what started the opportunity for me to uh, attend a tryout um, that, uh, you know, was being put on for 
um, players around the United States for the youth team. Um, and I was able to make the youth team. A uh, gentleman by the name of Ray Klaveka and Angus McAlpine were the coaches. Ray Klaveka was significant because a couple years later, uh, actually not a couple years later, one year later, um, this was when I was a senior in high school, um, Ray took the assistant coaching job with the New York Cosmos. And, uh, and he was the one that made the initial contact for me and the possibility of, of going to play in New York. And again, long story short, uh, it was all of those people, it was all of those different events or stars aligning that uh, allowed me to, uh, you know, potentially uh, have the opportunity to, to join uh, this team that at that time had Pelé and Beckenbauer on it, two people that, uh, you know, were a part of soccer way back when I had that initial exposure, uh, certainly with Franz and playing with Germany. And, of course, Pelé's presence in the World Cup in, the, you know, the 60s and 70s. And so, uh, you know, suddenly now you've got an opportunity to play on the same team as them. It's like, holy cow, this is like a dream. Uh, but anyway, so that's how that's how it all came together. Well, the the intervention, obviously, you've mentioned two or three sort of very well-known names in in, um, in professional and historical United States soccer circles. I mean, Walt Chiswitz, obviously a Hall of Famer. He uh, was to your almost to your point where he's almost like a one man national program. Uh, for those years, if you will. Right. Um, and Ray Klaveka, obviously. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and so but but you before you got to the, the Cosmos, though, you were playing college soccer. Right. And that was that really the path if there was any real path for the professional in the United States? Well, yeah, at, at the time, um, there it wasn't as much a, a clear path going through the collegiate game um, because college soccer in the this would have been the mid 70s, 76, 77. Um, college soccer wasn't quite as developed and certainly not as prominent as, uh, you know, many of the programs and schools have gotten into it here over the last 20, 30 years. Uh, but what happened was when I was um, a senior in high school, I went to this tryout, made the youth team. Um, the youth team was scouted by a number of the pro teams, uh, the Cosmos being one of them, um, San Jose Earthquakes, Tampa Bay Rowdies, L.A. Aztecs. And these teams also uh, had expressed interest in me coming to play with them um, right out of high school, right after my uh, my senior year in high school. Well, mom and dad, mom being a nurse, dad being a doctor, very educationally oriented people thought, well, you know, this this you know the soccer thing can wait uh, until you get your education done. And so, um, you know, I forewent the opportunities that were available then um, and went to Santa Clara. Um, now, ironically, and I, I like to tell people this because uh, I, I believe my um, success is, is a humble one. Um, you know, I think there were a lot of people out there that, uh, you know, had lots of ability. I was just fortunate in being one of the ones that was given the opportunity to, to be able to get out there and do it. But anyway, um, there were there were only two colleges in the entire country that expressed any interest in me coming and playing college soccer. Uh, yet I had five pro teams that expressed interest in me joining them at the same time. Um, one of the college programs was Santa Clara. The other one was Princeton. And I don't know if people remember the name Bill Muse. Uh, Bill was a, a, a prominent coach within the U.S. soccer circles, uh, but also was the coach at Princeton. Sure. And those were the only two schools that, uh, you know, that had interest in me playing soccer. I had several that wanted me to play football, several that wanted me to play tennis and, uh, you know, and, and a couple of other sports. Um, but uh, it was my passion for soccer, my passion for the game that made me want to pursue um, soccer. And so ultimately, I went to Santa Clara for a year. Um, at the end of my, my freshman year, 
I sat down with mom and dad and said, you know, I understand the education and, and its importance and value. Um, but, you know, being a professional soccer player is my dream. And I have the opportunity right now. And ultimately, um, you know, mom and dad acquiesced and said, okay, Rick, we'll, we'll go along with this idea of you going and playing. And, uh, and that's where ultimately the Cosmos entered the picture and uh, Ray Klavecka was coaching with them as the assistant. And, uh, you know, they dangled the opportunity to play with Pelé and Beckenbauer, Canalia, Bogusevich, Alberto, and Niskins, all these great players. And, uh, you know, what kid, uh, you know, who had grown up during some of those, uh, those players, you know, great careers wouldn't want to. Well, I, I also have to imagine that the, uh, I think people need to remember sort of during that time, um, you had a league not only with, uh, you know, a tremendous amount of foreign talent, and, and arguably foreign talent is what uh, kept this league sort of going for a decent period of time, but there was a real effort, uh, some would call it token, some would call it genuine, to to, to bring in American players or North American players into into the mainstream with, you know, rules like three North Americans on the field at all all times, that kind of thing. Um, do, you, do you think that that was uh, that added to the, uh, I guess, frenzied interest? I mean, you have five, six pro clubs looking at you at high school. Was there almost a desperation to find decent players uh, to bring into the into the game? I think there I think there was. Um, I think that, uh, you know, because, again, to to look at the game today and to try and imagine what it was like back, uh, you know, again, in the uh, late 60s, early 70s, mid 70s, that era, um, it was completely different. And, you know, with the league uh, and I like to think of the North American Soccer League as this wonderful example of, of America, how we are a, a country or a society of many cultures of, you know, of many different, uh, you know, nationalities. And, and that's what, you know, that's what soccer was here in the United States. It was a, a mixing of a number of different players from literally every imaginable place in the world, uh, the cosmos having, you know, certainly a bunch of them. And, uh, and you know, the, the league knew that in order for there to be, you know, long-term success, you needed to have there be North American or, you know, American player involvement. And so their idea of helping to facilitate or to make that happen was simply to require that a certain number of North Americans played on the field. And the North American reference is because the league was both in the United States and Canada. And so that created the playing opportunity, the development opportunity for literally a bunch of, of players coming either out of college or as myself or Dave Bursick, people might remember Dave as a goalkeeper did, you know, the same thing that I did. Um, it created a, an opportunity that wouldn't necessarily have been there otherwise. And so the teams knew that, well, you know, we, we want to have the strongest possible players as those three, if not potentially more, and so it, it, it created, uh, you know, a bit of a, of a focus on the value, the importance, the need of going out and, and finding this domestic talent um, and, you know, developing it and, uh, you know, and helping it to grow and, and you know, and, and all the things that I know that the, the people that were involved with the league at the time, uh, you know, wanted to have happen. And, and certainly I was a benefactor of that. Well, you, you know, you clearly uh, struck the lottery, right? Because of all the teams you could have gone to, right? You didn't go to just a really good team, but you went to the, you know, arguably the, uh, the, uh, the, the, the center, the pinnacle, the, you know, whatever superlative you want to throw, 
a team that not only, you know, dominated the, the, the North American scene during the late 70s and 80s with all the great talent and stars and, and play, but uh, arguably was, you know, the first real kind of modern day super club, right? I mean, you, you kind of, you could have gone to other, another team, right? And, and done uh, pretty well, but, but you had to go to the best team literally in the world at that time. That's got to be a pretty heady, uh, heady experience. Oh, it was. And, uh, and, you know, and a lot of that was, you know, obviously considered and known at the time. Um, you know, my perspective was that if I, if I was, you know, going to be good enough, if I was going to be able to compete, might as well go where the best players and the best team is and, and try and, and do it there. And, uh, and kind of unbeknownst to me at the time, um, but it became very obvious early on, was how invested both the, the the team and the players were in helping Americans or, you know, in this case, myself, um, develop. Um, you know, if, if people remember, yourself included, and if you remember some of the games, um, there were many a time where you would see Rick Davis and Franz Beckenbauer literally having a conversation on the field during the game. Now, yeah, much of it was during some of the stoppages, ball out of play, you know, ball, you know, stop for a foul or, you know, th that kind of thing. But Franz was constantly teaching me, as were many of the other players, Giorgio Canalia, um, Johan Maskins, Vladislav Bogusevich, and, and a lot of stuff that wasn't necessarily even set out on the field was then said at practices or in the locker room at halftime. And so I, I, what I did was I, I struck gold, if you will, by not only going to play with a very good um, team, but one that was very invested in my growth and development, both from the team's perspective, but also the individual players. And, and I look back and I think to myself, you know, it, it, ironically, it would have been almost more difficult to grow and develop and be successful than it was to do so because of all of the help that I had from my teammates and, and the organization. Well, look, I mean, you're also being a tad bit modest because in essence, you became, I would argue, the, the probably the biggest uh, North American produced star that that league uh, 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 brought to bear. Perhaps Kyle Roach Jr. maybe a little bit even more pioneering back in the maybe even earlier days. But, um, you know, your career, uh, you you obviously had some level of talent even before being dropped into this sort of superstar, uh, uh, you know, uh, environment uh, for a team as uh, uh, as heady as the Cosmos to, uh, um, you know, to, to bring you in. I don't think they would would have done that with just anybody uh, just because they were North American uh, background. Yeah, and I and I try and be realistic about it, but uh, you know, I, I I do like to say that. Um, in, you know, in the years that have now been retired from the game and looking at players today, what, one of the things that you're commonly asked is, you know, okay, well, how do players compare today to, you know, to your generation? And the simple reality is the players today are better. Um, you know, they're better equipped. They're trained at a higher level at younger ages. They're exposed to higher levels of competition, which is to say it stimulates their growth in those areas at earlier ages. There, there are so many different things that, Today's players are are just simply better, and 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 this has been going on now since you know since I retired. I remember ultimately part of my decision to retire um, actually started when we were in a training camp with the national team, and there was this new generation of players that were being brought in. This was the Tab Ramos, Peter Vermees, Mike Windishman, that generation of player, 
and we were at a training camp out in California. And I remember we were scrimmaging and there was a ball that had rebounded off of the goalpost that was all mine. It, you know, I did it, it ball coming to me had happened that way in a hundred, you know, hundred different instances. And it was clearly mine. Well, all of a sudden tab kind of juked his way around me and took the ball before I really even knew what happened. And, and I've even mentioned this to tab in the years afterwards. I said, you know, you were the guy that made me start to realize that retirement wasn't too far away. Um, and this would have been in, I, I want to say it was 88, 89, um, where I came to realize that, yeah, these guys were, were coming into the game better equipped than certainly my generation was. And, uh, and that was awesome. I mean, it was great to see that, uh, you know, that all of this um, effort in terms of trying to, uh, you know, to help the game grow and to help there be opportunities for players to play. Um, was was you know starting to starting to pay off, and it was the early early days for that. But uh, you know clearly something had begun. But Rick Davis, the reality of it was a grunter. You know my responsibility with the Cosmos, and I believe it was a very valuable one because you weren't going to get Franz Beckenbauer to go out there and defensively win the ball in midfield from you know the other team. What you wanted Franz to do was his ability to read the game and his you know finesse and accuracy in distributing the ball. Um, it was the same thing, you know, with Giorgio up front. You know, you didn't want Rick Davis up front. You wanted Giorgio, who really wasn't that skillful of a player. But, man, did he have a finishing touch that, I, to this day, I'm not sure, uh, you know, I, I've seen as much as, as any as good as his was. And so my role was an important one. It was it was actually paired with Johan Naskins, and we were the guys in midfield that were kind of responsible for, you know, destroying play by the other team. And then as quickly as we could get the ball to somebody on our team that, uh, you know, I used to jokingly say that actually had the ability to do something with it. Did you ever, I can't imagine you didn't, but, but did you ever, you know, pinch yourself mid game or, or become self-aware or, or frankly become a bit intimidated in that process? It sounds like you had a fairly smooth transition, which is a testament to your skill and your professionalism. And obviously I, I saw that in person uh, many, many games, but, uh, there had to be moments when you went, you know, how did I get here? And, or am I, you know, any self-doubt or, or questioning about being on such a world stage or, 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 or did, were those allayed by, you know, the, uh, the support that you had from, from your teammates to, to improve and constantly get better? Oh, there, there were times, um, you know, and, and, you know, and I think that's sort of a, a natural, you know, uh, evolution or natural happening of, an athlete's career where, you know, you go through highs and lows. And, uh, and for me, you know, most of the lows were, you know, around, you know, times where I had not significant injuries, but injuries that, you know, that, that kept me out for a little bit. Uh, the first one actually happened in, you know, in 1980. So imagine again, I joined the Cosmos uh, at the end of the 77 season, um, got to play, you know, a little bit uh, during the 78 season literally played every game um, in the 79 season. So we're coming into the 1980 season and I'm, I'm ready to go. I'm ready to continue to grow and develop to expand, you know, my game and, you know, and, and the different, uh, you know, attributes that I would have or whatever. And I end up um, tearing ligaments in my ankle. Um, and so I was, you know, casted for six weeks was, uh, you know, in rehab for another, you know, four or five weeks after that. And this was right smack in the middle of the season. And so um, there was really the first time that I had some doubts because, number one, I wasn't sure how I was going to recover and or respond. 
from the ankle injury itself. Um, but whereas I had felt so comfortable and even so confident in my role from the year prior, I wasn't sure what my role was, um, you know, coming back or trying to come back into the team. And so the 1980 season was, you know, was kind of an up and down year for me. And, uh, and that's where, again, I had some of those, some of those doubts, but much of that was delayed by the people, the players, um, you know, and, and this is where, uh, you know, a Franz Beckenbauer, a Carlos Alberto, some of the older guys who, you know, they've, they've been around the block a bunch of times, but they, um, you know, were very good at keeping your perspective in, in an appropriate place instead of being so wrapped up and worried about whether you can find your way back into the team or find the rhythm back in your game. Um, you know, they sort of would walk you through these things of, okay, just, you know, take it sort of day by day and practice by practice. And, you know, you haven't become a different person. You know, there's nothing different. Uh, you've recovered from the injury and, you know, now it's just a matter of getting your touch back. And so they, they helped a lot um, in, in both in that regard. But then there was also, ironically, a, a flip side of this. I, you know, as I mentioned to you, 79 was kind of a, a breakout year for me. Well, as we were coming into the 80 season, this is before I had the injury, I was ready to take on a whole different role within the team. I was ready to play make. I was ready to, you know, distribute the ball and, uh, you know, and, and have that part of my game really grow. Well, we're in training camp, and I am just stinking it up on the field losing the ball quite frequently, um, you know, not contributing, uh, you know, to the team or, you know, to the games that, uh, you know, was playing in the way I had before. And I remember we were down in the Bahamas for our, our, our training camp doing this. And uh, after a game that we had played and, and you know, and, and the competition wasn't, you know, anything great. So we were winning games by, you know, six, seven, eight goals as we were doing this. Uh, but again, I wasn't playing well. And so um, we got on the bus to go back to the hotel from one of the games and Franz, Giorgio and Bogey literally, and I mean, literally physically grabbed me and threw me into the back of the bus. And Georgia was the first one that got in my face and said, you know, what in the heck is wrong with you? What on earth are you trying to do? And Franz got on me in the same way, and Bogey did the same thing. And this was, you know, the education of, of you know, Rick Davis. This is why I, I feel fortunate the path that I had, because it was almost impossible for me to deviate from this growth and develop an opportunity when you had people like Franz, Bogey, and Giorgio, who were seemingly so, you know, so interested in making sure that I stayed on the right path. And, uh, and after that, I, there was no doubt in my mind as to what my, my abilities were and what my role was to be within the team. And, you know, everything got, uh, you know, got better after that. So I, I, you can't really sort of uh, have a conversation about the cosmos about without sort of the sort of extraneous and uh, I don't know, the, the star struck and celebrity driven and all that kind of stuff. I, you know, you, you, you came into this team, uh, like it or not, uh, with a sort of a, you know, an all-American uh, boy-man uh, uh, kind of um, uh, aura to you, right? And, uh, you know, clearly you had to, uh, an international uh, uh, conglomerate of teams and executives and, and, and lots of, uh, I guess, uh, uh, accoutrements that come with, uh, you know, being a very famous and, uh, and well-paid sort of organization, um, this may be sort of your gratuitous opportunity to uh, uh, lay us on with a uh, a story or two about sort of the uh, the the 
magic, I guess, or the uh, the unrealities of uh, of being a Cosmo back in the late seventies and early eighties. Yeah, the 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 thing that uh, is you know I think best for people to try to even grasp or to understand is that if there were a way, and and whether you want to look at the you know the Barcelonas or um, you know some of the uh, you know the English teams, whether it's uh, you know at Chelsea or Manchester United, you know teams that are are, are really you know, strong in terms of, uh, you know, the, the, the players that they have on there. And they aren't just, you know, domestic players. Uh, the, the Cosmos were uh, miles ahead of that. And this was, you know, the concept, you know, the, the people, the, the brain children, if you will, um, were the Erdogan brothers um, who were part of Warner Communication and Steve Ross, uh, who was the, uh, you know, the executive director. And, uh, you know, and Steve's role was believing in what it is that I think Ahmed and Neshwi Erdogan um, believed, you know, could happen. And that was to create this super team. And, uh, you know, but for the fact that it was in the United States, the thing that I don't believe a lot of people really understood is the Cosmos team was really so good that we could compete with any club team around the world and many national teams. Um, and, and sure, you know, uh, people will always, you know, create the, the doubtful, you know, uh, thinking by saying, well, you know, the games that you played were just exhibition and, uh, you know, they weren't meaningful. And uh, I, what I want to say to them is you clearly have never met a professional athlete because there is no such thing as a friendly game. There is no such thing as a, just an exhibition game. A professional athlete is somebody who goes out and tries to win all of the time. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and so, you know, whether, you know, people were saying that because they, you know, were embarrassed by the fact that, you know, the Cosmos literally beat some of the top club teams from around the world playing in their stadiums, you know, or, you know, playing away from home, or whether it was when we played Argentina, uh, granted it was on artificial turf and it was in giant stadium right after they won the world cup and, but for a late goal, you know, played them to a draw. Um, you know, this, this team was really that good. And the collection of players was that impressive from all around the world. And so, um, you know, being a part of that was, was, I I mean, it it, it was both a dream as we started off talking a little bit about, um, but it was a a reality of, of the importance of, you know, you had to be on your game literally all of the time. And this was a team that whenever we traveled, and, and that was one of the ways that Warner Communications and the, you know, the team ended up you know, balancing the books, if you will, is we would go on these tours that lasted months. We do this preseason and we do it postseason. So there almost was no off season for us because we were, uh, when we were in league play, um, you know, we were obviously playing, but then before the season, we had gone on a tour and played, you know, probably 10, 12 games before the season even started. And then after the season, we would play another 10, 12 games on a tour. So, uh, you know, it was the way that the club made back, you know, a lot of the money because they were getting huge guaranteed fees because of the players, the stars that were on the team and everywhere we went. We were treated, uh, you know, to royalty, whether it was being hosted, you know, for these, you know, just unbelievable dinners or whether it was, uh, you know, the accommodations that we were given. Uh, But everywhere we went, stadiums were packed um, and people both, you know, loved and hated us. They loved us because many of the places we went, we had players from those countries on our team. 
Um, and in other instances, you know, they, they hated us because we were from America. And you got to remember, America wasn't supposed to be a soccer playing country um, in the world's eyes, at least back in those days. Um, and to have all of these great players and to have this team representing the United, United States, uh, if you will, um, it was it was almost comical in terms of how people would uh, you know both love and hate us. In the actual NASL, how would you have rated sort of the quality of play and the experiences there? Right? Because uh, it, I think a lot of fans, uh, soccer fans today, don't realize how uh, compressed uh, uh, on the on the calendar the NASL schedule was. And you know, today I hear you hear uh, you hear complaining about playing two games in a week. Uh, but that was a constant and common thing in the NASL and not necessarily three or four days in between games, too. Um, was it uh, how was the quality of play and your ability to keep up with it, shall we say? Yeah, the, the quality of play was, I, I believe, you know, higher than most people that, you know, have, you know, for the most part, given it credit. Um, you know, a lot of people talk about how, you know, most of the, the top players that were coming from abroad were in the twilight of their career um, or they, you know, were, were, you know, people that were looking to break into, you know, teams and or national programs in various parts of the world. And so um, I, I don't know that the league, not the Cosmos, but I don't know that the league ever got the credit that I believe that it deserved. Um, because it, it, it was very competitive, despite, uh, again, the fact that, yeah, a lot of the players that did come were, you know, in, in the last few years of their career. But that didn't mean that they couldn't play. That didn't mean that they weren't capable of, you know, creating high level performance. And when you gather all of those people, you know, together and you put them, you know, on teams or you mix them with um, other players, and that was kind of going back to what we talked about a little bit before with my contribution to the team is when you, you know, you take somebody like a Beckenbauer or a Palay or a Roberto, uh, you know, Cabanas or uh, again, number of different players that we had and you say, okay, so they're in the twilight years of their career. Well, what really has happened is that they aren't necessarily as dominant physically. Their skills haven't really deteriorated and certainly their knowledge and, uh, you know, and, 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 you know, thought process in terms of the strategies and things like that in the game hasn't changed. It's just a physical challenge. And, and so that's where I jump in is that I, you know, was raring to go and, uh, you know, was full of fit and vigor. And I did the hard work that we really didn't want them to be wasting their time and energy on. And so they were able to contribute at a higher level because of my involvement or because of a Johan Naskin's role or because of some of the other players that were brought onto the team, not because of the big name, not because of past success or whatever, but because we enabled them to be able to do what they, you know, they were capable of doing or could do if, uh, you know, if again, they didn't have to do a bunch of the other, the other work. So you had that. The other thing that I think also, you know, is important for people to understand is, um, you know, the, the, when we had tournaments or when we had competitions that included foreign teams, um, other teams, not just the Cosmos, were very successful. Um, you know, whether it was the Transatlantic Cup, whether it was, you know, through some exhibition play that happened over the course of the year, there, there was a lot of success that I think got kind of brushed under the rug. Uh, because, again, it, it sort of left a bad taste in people's mouths because they thought, no, 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 America can't be 
dominating and you know winning uh, you know in our game. So you you had that. But as far as the actual um, you know players and you know and the teams and and things like that, I, I think that uh, you know that the North American Soccer League never really got the the international due um, that it could have or probably should have. And uh, you know, and obviously at this point, never will. Well, look, I mean, it's 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 certainly a, a bias that uh, continues today with, uh, you know, a major league soccer that's going on 20 plus years and, uh, you know, doing all the right things on on, on many different levels. Um, and and still there's sort of this uh, aspersion, I guess, or this sort of uh, second tier sort of status accorded to the uh, to the U.S. game. And, we, you know, we're recording this uh, prior to a few hours from now, a U.S. national game of of uh, tremendous importance. Right. As we try to qualify for the next uh World Cup with a big game in in the Estadio Azteca in uh, in Mexico, Mexico, um, right? And uh, you know, I think frankly, people take that for granted, right? Because it's going to be on national television, and and it's actually a conversation among sports fans uh, today. But you know, you were part of a, a national team, and I, I uh, that was you know very um, uh, instrumental in laying quite a bit of groundwork for uh, the beginnings of international success in the uh, the late eighties, early nineties, getting to the World Cup for the first time in forever. Um, but maybe you can kind of regale us a little bit in how you uh, managed your duties as being uh, one of the lead players on the U.S. national soccer team with a, a star-studded uh, Cosmos team that I got to guess wasn't necessarily enthralled with uh, you missing games and uh, uh, practices for this uh, national team thing, which wasn't even on many people's radars. Yeah, it's a good place, I think, to start in because the, you know, the perspective of the national team back in the, you know, mid to late 70s and early 80s um, was, was really, in many respects, a kind of a forgotten thing. Um, that both internationally, but also domestically. And what I mean by internationally is nowadays we have what they call, uh, you know, international play dates. And this is uh, a schedule that has been put out by FIFA. Um, and they're the ones that are saying to everybody, okay, when you're going to have your qualifiers, we're going to create these dates that club teams are supposed to schedule around with their regular seasons and so forth so that we don't have this conflict between uh, a national team and a player you know, going to play for his country versus playing with his club team, which may or may not be. Uh, even within that, you know, within that country. Well, we didn't have that. And so one of the things that happened quite frequently is that there would be a conflict between a qualifier with the U.S. team playing against a Mexico, a Costa Rica, an El Salvador, whoever, and the Cosmos regular season. They would be playing a game at Giant Stadium or one of the other teams or venues around the United States. And so as a player, um, it, it was always a very difficult spot to be put in because there is a loyalty to your club. Um, I, you know, the, the cosmos, you know, have done things for me and the game, the sport of soccer have done things for me that I'll never be able to repay. Um, I, I mean, I just can't, I, I can't imagine why I was chosen or why I was given so much, but the problem is that when you've got that, there's another big part of my loyalty and that is red, white, and blue baby. And, uh, you know, and, and to think that, um, you know, you have to choose between one or the other was always a, a miserable, miserable thing to do. And quite often it was, you know, a, a long dialogue with coaches from both of the teams. It was, uh, you know, a, a compromise in terms of, you know, maybe instead of coming in to the national team training camp that's scheduled for three or four days before that qualifier, 
you'd come in, you know, the day before, and that way you would be able to make a game in, you know, Vancouver or whatever. So, uh, yeah, you were willing to deal with the jet lag of traveling cross country or whatever it might be. There was a lot of wheeling and dealing that went on um, in order for that to happen. Um, I believe that today's game, again, through you know, just, you know, better management sophistication, you know, that there is this notion that a soccer player can't and shouldn't be expected to play more than, you know, a, a game or, you know, occasionally two games a week because of the physical demands that, uh, you know, that it puts on, on your body, which ultimately, you know, adversely affects performance and, you know, leaves you vulnerable or exposed potentially to injury. Well, that type of stuff didn't exist back then. And, uh, you know, and within the North American Soccer League, you know, we were often playing three games a week. You know, you'd play on a Saturday or Sunday, you'd, uh, you know, fly home, you'd play a game on Tuesday or Wednesday, and then you'd, uh, you know, travel out on the road again and play on a Friday or a Saturday. And and it wasn't necessarily just a, a one-shot during the season deal. This was happening, you know, pretty frequently. And so, uh, you know, there, there was a, a physical demand that, uh, you know, that I think our players back then were put to that we don't as much, you know, see today. Um, in terms of, you know, performance and stuff like that, you know, it's hard to say whether it, you know, really created a negative toll on that. Um, but uh, I, I can I can remember plenty of time where, um, you know, you, you are absolutely exhausted. The funny thing that I, you know, jokingly share with people is they ask questions about, well, you know, what was your routine before a game? Well, my routine for before a game was to relax. And quite often I would fall asleep on the training table before the game would start and somebody would have to wake me up. Otherwise I might sleep through it. Um, and, uh, you know, and so they, they laugh and think, oh yeah, I'm sure. Well, it was true. And, and a lot of that was simply because of exhaustion, because of the schedule that you were, you know, you were playing. And, uh, and that was, you know, for somebody like myself that was playing both with the cosmos, wanting to play all of the games, but also, not wanting to miss any of the national team games that were going on at the same time. Okay, friends, sorry for the interruption. Just wanted to quickly remind you that today's episode of Good Seat Still Available is brought to you by our friends at Audible, the premier provider of digital audiobooks with over 180,000 titles to choose from in just about every genre you could think of. Audible titles play on iPhone, Kindle, Android, and more than 500 devices and MP3 players for listening anytime, anywhere. And for a limited time, my audience can listen to a free download of any book that they choose, as well as get a 30-day free trial when you go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats. That's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And you can choose from over 180,000 titles, as we said, including uh, one that I'm listening to right now. It's called The Ten-Gallon War by John Eisenberg. That's the story of the NFL's Cowboys, the AFL's Texans, and the feud for Dallas's pro football future. Um, another one on my list, which I have yet to download, but is on my queue uh, that could be interesting to our audience here, is called The National Forgotten League by Dan Daly, entertaining stories and observations from pro football's first 50 years. Those are just two of the many thousands of titles to choose from, and not just in sports history, but you name the genre that uh, you might want to listen to, and Audible's got it. By the way, two uh, two guests, perhaps, that we'll have on the show, hopefully sometime soon. But again, go to audibletrial.com slash goodseats 
for your free 30-day trial as well as your free audiobook download to try it out for yourself. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash goodseats. And now, back to our conversation. So here's a little rabbit hole, and I think it's really interesting, and I really haven't heard any a whole lot of thought around this, but but I, I think you're in a unique position to maybe answer uh, some of these questions around this, right? So in the early 80s, right, we were talking about uh, the league obviously having uh, quite a bit of success, maybe some initial questions about uh, the long-term sustainability of that success, and, and some of those, in hindsight, some of those things are starting to to, to show but be part, being part of the national team, um, there was this major effort, Henry Kissinger and others involved, right, to get uh, the United States to host the 1986 World Cup. And I guess my question to you is, being somebody so front and center, not only at the NASL level and with a superstar team uh, of worldwide caliber like the Cosmos, but also being the linchpin or the key, one of the key players and, and stars of the U.S. national team, um, how much were you aware of, of sort of that, uh, that pursuit? And, and do you think that would have, I'm sure it would have, but how do you think that would have changed the dynamic around the national team? Should the United States have gotten the world cup uh, in terms of the NASL, as well as the sport here? No, I, I, it's such a good question. I, I, I haven't really, you know, really thought a lot about that, but, um, you know, I, I guess my first reaction is to think that it likely would have accelerated some of the things that, you know, that we saw happen a little bit later, um, you know, specifically, you know, obviously there was 94 and then of course our, our women um, in, uh, you know, 99. And, uh, and so I think that maybe, you know, having the world cup and, or not having, but being a part of the world cup and, or having it in the United States earlier than we did, I think might've, moved a lot of the things up that, uh, you know, that didn't happen for, you know, for some number of years later. Um, I think, though, that, uh, and this is something that I'm always a little bit guarded or a little bit cautious about, and that is, um, I, I, I believe things in many respects just simply have to follow a path. They have to follow a, a, an evolution. And in order, in order to be successful, in order to have the uh, you know the lasting effect and or the results that I think often we hope it won. And so I think that in some instances, um, maybe just maybe there there wasn't as much development. There had has been much growth or attention or focus on soccer um, in the mid '80s that would have allowed that World Cup to be as successful as it certainly was when, uh, you know, when we hosted in 94. Um, and, uh, and, you know, and, and for that matter, maybe it was also equally as important that we qualified for the World Cup, specifically thinking about 90, um, in playing a World Cup before we actually got the free birth or, or free bid by being, you know, a host nation. Um, and, uh, you know, and how people might have perceived, uh, you know, much of that. So, uh, you know, as much as I was one of those people during that era, you know, the late 70s and early 80s or mid-80s, that was saying, oh, yeah, soccer is the next big sport and, uh, you know, football, baseball, basketball, better watch out. Um, I, I reflect back and I think, yeah, you know, I think the game just needed to, to go the, the path that it did. And, uh, and 
obviously love and excited, uh, you know, to no end about, you know, where Major League Soccer is and where, you know, the game of the sport is in terms of its acceptance and, uh, and you know, participation of, you know, so many people in a variety of different ways besides just, you know, kids that love to play it. Um, loved it, loved where the game is at today. Um, so on a professional, so that's a that's a, a very good answer. I, I, I'm just it it fascinates me because you also had that sort of Team America thing in 1983. Were you ever considered for part of that? Given the I guess U.S. Soccer's intent to have it as at least a fl- uh, fully uh, uh, running professional team as a as a training exercise in preparation, or what, did that never ever to the conversation for you as a player? Oh, it absolutely did. You know, it's it's kind of funny because uh, you know I, I kind of skipped over that. That uh, and that's a little bit of a of a you know sore subject for me uh, for a couple of reasons. One was that um, uh, understood the concept. It was actually one that was born out of our volleyball team, uh, one of the Olympic volleyball uh, teams. Uh, I want to say that it was in the eighties. Might have been um, even earlier. But they had recognized the need and the value of centralizing and being able to train and to play on a regular basis, uh, which was one of the dilemmas that we were having in soccer is that, uh, you know, the players weren't being given the opportunity to train in or play at a high level on a consistent basis, certainly not together. Um, And, yeah, people would say, well, you know, that's the way it is for the rest of the world. Why would the United States be any different? Well, part of it was that we developmentally as a soccer playing nation were in a very different place at that time, too. And so we had, you know, when I was playing with the national team, half the team was kids that were playing in college. Um, you know, and you tell me what other country in the world had kids playing in college that made up, you know, a, a good portion of your team. Um, you know, they're, they're accustomed to, uh, you know, training, uh, you know, for maybe an hour, an hour and a half, uh, you know, during the week. And, you know, and the big priority in their life is their education and their degree. Uh, and again, they're going out and playing against, uh, you know, people that have, uh, and are doing nothing but the professional soccer players that are trying to, you know, perform and or play as best they can. So um, there were many things that were different about the United States. When the concept was first presented, I actually was called into the league offices in New York and asked, you know, a number of different questions. But the big one, I think, was about my involvement. Would I be willing to play? And I immediately said, well, of course I would, you know, as an American player and, you know, wanting the U.S. team to not only qualify, but to be able to represent, uh, you know, ourselves well at the uh, Olympic or national team at World Cup level. Um, absolutely. Um, but, you know, it, it's got to be something that, uh, you know, that is, is done appropriately. And that starts with making sure that other people, thinking specifically of the cosmos, um, that they know about it and that they're willing to embrace it as well. And so the whole Team America concept of a team playing at the North American Soccer League, um, the idea was born. Long story short, uh, it did turn out to be, I think, what some of the people had thought initially, and ultimately that's what kind of soured me on it, is I was prepared to leave the cosmos in light of all that they had done for me and in light of, you know, the, the fact that they were who they were and my growth and development was obviously huge in terms of, uh, you know, being a part of them, uh, wasn't prepared to just up and go to this other team because people thought, yeah, that would be a good idea. When, in fact, they started to bring in, you know, a number of foreign players from abroad who wouldn't have been eligible to play with our national team. And so, it, it, it to me, it just became 
this idea of the league wanted to create another team. They wanted to have a team in specifically Washington, D.C., and, uh, you know, and this was a way of doing it. And, uh, and it was, yeah, thanks, but no thanks. And, uh, and as I, you know, said when you first brought it up, um, it cost me a number of friendships, uh, specifically one, you know, very important one to me was, do you remember Jeff Durgan? Sure. Um, yeah, Jeff was a defender with the Cosmos, a young kid who had come to the team, you know, very, very similarly as, as I did. And his, involved with the national team too was following a similar path and uh, you know and and Jeff and I were good friends well Jeff made the decision to go to team america and I didn't and he couldn't understand why and to this day um Jeff and I've never never reconciled our differences and you know you think that's silly i mean we're a bunch of old men now but uh you know Jeff felt that it was the right thing to do and that you know and and he jumped on board and I, you know, shared with him, as I did everybody else, I didn't think it was the right thing to do, didn't think it was the right thing for the league or the sport or, you know, the, the players at that time. And, uh, you know, and as I say, it, it, it you know, has a, a toll that's, you know, lasted this long and, uh, you know, and, you know, it's too bad. Well, I mean, con- it was a controversial concept in many respects. And frankly, you know, you're you're in a position, Jeff, as well, I'm sure, and some of the other players where... You had some level of at least perceived or, or actual in the Cosmos case, I'm sure, uh, stability. Uh, you know, why would you, I guess, trade for something that is so questionable and or uncertain when, you know, you're playing for arguably the best team, in the, at least in the league, but certainly in, maybe in the, even in the world at that time? It's a it's a tough decision, you know, when you've got, you know, bills to pay and their family or, you know, other life things uh, encroach in there, too. So I, I can't imagine it's just a very simple uh, thought process. Oh, absolutely. And, you know, and, and unfortunately, you know, and, and, and it even still exists today, um, is that, you know, you, there, there are always um, a lot of different people and a lot of different things that are around um, the, the, the sports entertainment uh, environment. And, uh, you know, and, and you hear all sorts of great ideas and great things, but, uh, you know, that uh, you, you learn very quickly that not all of them are what they seem to be, um, you know, certainly at least on the surface uh, they are. But uh, when you dig down a little bit, nah, that's not necessarily the case. And, you know, and so in many ways you become a little bit guarded when, you know, you're talking about your career, you're talking about your livelihood in terms of, uh, you know, making some of these decisions. And, you know, uh, for me, it was any it, time. I remember, you know, when I, uh, you know, uh, had the first true conflict, of a schedule where it was a significant game for the cosmos and it was obviously a significant qualifier for the u.s team um how difficult you know reconciling that was for me because i I, you know i uh, there aren't too many people that are as as patriotic if you will in terms of my perspective and 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 again something that we haven't touched upon but uh, one of the reasons why i did so much of what i did in my playing career is i wanted to represent the American game. Um, I turned down the opportunity to go play abroad um, after my first developmental years or whatever with the Cosmos um, and throughout my career. Um, and, and my fear was always that people would say, well, he was a good player, but he really developed when he went and played, you know, in X, you know, kind of a thing. And, uh, and I wanted to represent American players. I wanted to repre- represent the American game, let people see what we are capable of 
And and that, too, was a burden because that carried with me with the national team and or the Olympic team. And every time we, you know, didn't qualify or every time we, you know, didn't have a good game or whatever, I, I it, it bared a heavy burden on me because I felt that that, too, was my responsibility, that I was supposed to be the person that helped to guide the team past a lot of that and through a lot of that. And, uh, you know, and it was very frustrating in that, uh, you know, that I, I didn't or couldn't. Where, where else might you have gone uh, internationally, uh, if you're at liberty to say? Well, what a lot of people don't know is when we signed with the Cosmos, and I say we, Dave Bursick, um was another player, um, a goalkeeper that uh, out of St. Louis that uh, signed. We actually signed with the Cosmos at the same time. And uh, they had a press conference, and literally the next day, we were on a plane and spent the better part of the next year in Milan, um, training and playing with AC Milan, not the first team, but with the youth team and the under-23 team. We trained with the first team, but never, never really to play with them. Um, that actually created opportunities, though, with a couple of the, uh, you know, the Serie A teams. Um, there was opportunities in Greece, Holland, Belgium, Germany, um, England. Um, I had the opportunity to go play in Brazil, um, Argentina, um, Mexico. Um, those are the ones that come come to mind throughout my years with the Cosmos, and uh, you know, and uh, and you know, some of them were you know very enticing, um, you know, both uh, you know financially, but also in terms of you know developmentally. Um, but, uh, again, I, I, the thing that I think probably more often than not was the deal breaker for me. And that was, okay, well, you know, what is this going to do to the American game? What is this going to represent to the American player? And, uh, you know, and, and I don't, don't get me wrong. I, cause every time I say that everyone says, oh, so you're saying that, well, Brent Goulet and Landon Donovan and all these guys that went and played you know, over in Europe. Uh, did the wrong thing. I'm like, no, 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 it's not the wrong thing. That's, you know, that's not it. It was a different time and a different place and different circumstances. And of course, you know, it, it's their careers. We're talking about mine and the decisions that, you know, that I made, but those were some of the opportunities that, uh, you know, that I had and didn't have to think too hard in terms of turning them down because of, you know, the, the opportunity and, uh, you know, and, and what I had here in the States with the Cosmos and, in our programs. Well, and, and, and heady opportunities for any North American player at that period of time. I mean, that's a, a testament to uh, not only the team you were playing with, but of course, your 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 skill within that team. Obviously, the uh, people noticing how quality a player you were, regardless of your uh, of your uh, ethnicity, if you will, or your background. Um, so well, you're yeah. making my ego just grow and grow and grow. <laughs> just keep talking. <laughs> well, look, I just, you know, um, well, okay. But you did ultimately leave this magic uh, rocket ship being the, of the cosmos, right? And it wasn't necessarily, um, you know, uh, going to last forever either, right? Um, I, I'm curious as to how uh, you ultimately decided to uh, to leave the cosmos. Obviously, they had been flirting with as the league had been. Uh, it was the on again period of being in the uh, indoor game uh, and the indoor game obviously was uh, becoming more uh, interesting and, and fan friendly, shall we say, while the NASL was uh, showing some signs of uh, creakage, I guess. Um, how did you sort of I guess it's two questions wrapped into one. How did you segue from the cosmos? How did you go to that make that decision uh, or was it made for you? Uh, and two, to play indoors, right, which was obviously, uh, in no, no pun here, gaining steam, I guess, as 
as a as a league that uh, strangely wound up becoming the 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 pinnacle of professional soccer in this country for the bulk of the of the eighties. Yeah, it, it, it's a good question. Um, it, it starts actually if we go back to the, you know the cosmos, and um, the season. Um, and, and I say the reason why you know I say I believe is again I might be off by a year or so, but um, at the time um, my contract with the cosmos was up, and um, and so it was uh, you know time to sit down and talk about uh, you know go forward. And, you know, and their intent was 100% to go forward with me being a part of the team, and my intent was 100% to go forward. However, what had started to happen, and, uh, you know, and, and this was part of the Rick Davis that wanted the game to succeed in the United States, even if that meant that in some respect there was personal sacrifice for that to happen. And, and you know, not wanting to get too, you know, lofty or whatever, but I, I, I adopted this perspective that, um, attendance in the North American Soccer League was on the decline. There were a number of teams that, uh, you know, over the, the early, you know, the early '80s that had folded, had ceased operation, and there wasn't, you know, a, a, an abundance of new teams coming into the league. And so it, it, it appeared that there were some things going on that needed to be addressed. And as a business person, which maybe was not to be my role, um, certainly with the Cosmos, but as a business person, I kept thinking. Well, this isn't going to last. No matter how much money Warner Communications or how committed the Nerdigan Brothers or Steve Ross are, sooner or later a stockholder is going to say, "Hey, what is this Cosmos thing that keeps losing money? Um, you know, why do we continue to have that?" And so, at my level, when I went in to negotiate my contract, I said, "I want not to get a pay increase. I want to have my contract either be." you know, kept at what it is right now without any increases or even reduced by 10%. And I said, and my reasoning for that and explained that I had concerns that um, our attendance at the giant stadium or for the cosmos was on the decline. And that sooner or later, my fear was that, you know, the team would fold and uh, you know, and that wouldn't be good for the game. It wouldn't certainly be good for, you know, the cosmos and uh, you know, and in the end would be good for me. And, 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 Oregon brothers, specifically Ahmed, he didn't react too well to me saying this, um, to the point where uh, he really got so upset that he said, go play somewhere else. You know, you don't want to be with us, then you go play somewhere else. And I said, no, that's, that's not it. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying I don't want to play with you. What I'm saying is I don't want to watch this team that has given me so much uh, that has done so much for me dwindle and, and ultimately fail or, you know, fall apart because, um, you know, you have to keep paying me more money or keep paying the players more money. Uh, and that wasn't obviously the only issue to be addressed, but, uh, and, and again, he, he basically pulled the so-called offer off the table and said, thanks, we're, you know, we're done. And, uh, and so lo and behold, um, I, my agent reached out to, uh, you know, a number of other teams around the league. Um, several were interested, but, uh, you know, it, it didn't seem like those were good places or suitable places for me to go. Um, and as you mentioned, uh, you know, when you asked the question that, uh, the, this thing called the MISL, um, you know, was really starting to gain, you know, some, some, you know, uh, interest around the country. 
um, in you know specifically a couple of markets, St. Louis being one of those. And so uh, I had been approached uh, a number of times by teams in that league asked about playing. And so ultimately the, the St. Louis Steamers, uh, you know, was the team that I decided to go ahead and give that a run. Uh, and and what was your experience playing indoors? I mean, obviously the Cosmos playing indoors, it was, uh, I guess you could sort of call it more of a, I don't know, I guess a half-hearted effort, right? I mean, uh, begrudgingly. Um, and, and frankly, a bit, uh, you, your premonitions were probably very strong that, uh, you know, maybe uh, the, the Cosmos, as well as the league in general, the NASL, were uh, were not long for this life. But how did, you know, how did you adjust to the indoor game and and did you see a real future in it and or were you a bit put off by the fact that that maybe this was the version of the game that was going to seemingly succeed in the years to come versus the ongoing nature of the outdoor game? Yeah, there, uh, there's actually a lot in what you just said. Um, number one is that um, I, I, I became somewhat uh, unpopular or, or my thoughts became you know, not very popular when I, I made reference to the fact that I felt that there was a, you know, an important place in, in our, you know, uh, soccer world here in the United States for indoor soccer. And, and specifically what I always thought to be, and even to some degree think, you know, could, could exist is where you have, uh, you know, a, a time of year where you have your outdoor season and you have a time of year for your indoor season. Um, yes, games are very different. The two games have, you know, very differing demands and attributes that are important and or, you know, more significant than others. But the thing that I, I used to say to people is it's still soccer. And as an athlete, not a soccer player, but as an athlete, I always thought, wow, the indoor game was a great place for me to work on my technical game uh, because it is, you know, on a smaller field, um, there is a lot of, uh, you know, speed and, uh, you know, and quicker demand for technical execution, um, you know, in the indoor game than there is on an outdoor field where you have greater space and so forth. And so I always thought that, yeah, this would be a great thing for just Rick Davis if he could play, you know, six, seven months of the year with the Cosmos in an outdoor season and then play, you know, three or four months of indoor soccer, you know, again, with the Cosmos, if, you know, if they were able to go that path, um, because developmentally it would be, it would be good. Um, and, and that seemed to kind of fly in the face of the soccer community, because as you might remember, there was no in between. You either were, you know, an outdoor guy or you were an indoor guy. And if you were an outdoor guy, the indoor game was a prostitution of the beautiful game. If you were an indoor game, the outdoor game was this, uh, you know, old, worn out, uh, you know, tired um, game that, uh, you know, that people keep losing interest in because it's slow or so, you know, any one of a number of things. And, uh, and never were the two ever going to, you know, come together, which was unfortunate because, you know, that was, I think, why, the MISL um, ended up having its good run, but not a lasting one. And that's also why the North American Soccer League never really invested in it. Uh, and it, too, didn't have, uh, you know, a very good run. You had, uh, you know, two entities that really weren't fully vested in trying to make things work. Instead, they were both trying to make the other not successful and, uh, you know, and didn't necessarily focus on, you know, on what I think could have been. Um, from a player perspective, uh, you know, I, I don't know whether it ever could have worked, um, but, 
you know, it was uh, it was unfortunate. And, uh, you know, what it did for me is it took me to St. Louis. It took me away from the outdoor game. And I know that there was a lot of challenge to, you know, getting back. I used to call it reacclimated to the outdoor game and to the outdoor field when, you know, you're playing a six-month, seven-month schedule, you know, on a field that's, you know, about a quarter or a fifth the size of an outdoor field. Um, well, I look, I, we, we, I, I've regaled you or you've regaled us with more than an hour of conversation. I don't want to, uh, 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 spend, I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I, 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 am really curious though, as, as the, as the MISL sort of wound down in the eighties, I mean, obviously you, you had a cup of coffee with the uh, New York express, right? That was an interesting sort of, uh, uh, <laughs> I like the way you referenced that. Yeah. I mean, uh, <laughs> so yeah, I guess it I'm just really, laugh. yeah. Yeah, I'm just really curious as how how uh, what the experience of playing indoors with a league that uh, itself had its own sort of issues and challenges. I mean, St. Louis, you had uh, amazing crowds, and to the Express, which was trying to sort of live in the the, the shadow of the Arrows, and then you know the Tacoma Stars, uh, arguably where you know your sort of career uh, professionally started to uh, to wind down. Um, you know, which is actually back up again in terms of uh, crowd enthusiasm and all that. Um, how do you what was going through your mind as a player? Uh, your future going forward, obviously no professional athlete can continue in their at peak performance for, for, uh, the rest of their, uh, you know, for, for, for all that long, it's a relatively short life. Uh, what was sort of the thinking about your future, the future of the sport in this country, uh, as the eighties were winding down and, um, uh, and your ultimate retirement from, from playing day to day in the game? Yeah, I, I, in terms of how it all unfolded is that we're now talking about the early to mid-80s when um, making this decision to, um, you know, uh, go the path that I did regarding the Cosmos and, you know, and, and their desires as well. And and so I am now, you know, approaching 30 and recognizing that, uh, you know, in a good scenario, I've got, you know, uh, four, five, six, maybe seven years left. Um, and so this this kind of focus in my mind um, starts to take place, and that is the 1990 World Cup. Um, and this is going to be my opportunity to, number one, have the U.S. team qualify um, and participate, and that will be, you know, the path that I go to say goodbye to the soccer world because, again, recognizing that I'm aging, the players that are coming along are getting better and better, and I never wanted to be a player that stayed around too long. I wanted to make sure that when the time was right um, and there were some younger players that uh, you know, needed the opportunity to come in, that I wasn't somehow an obstacle or a barrier in, in that happening. And so um, the, the challenge was that I had to use the indoor game as my high level of competition. Um, in order to try and stay fit and or, you know, prepared to compete and, uh, and be uh, competitive in the outdoor game. Uh, that was a big challenge. And, uh, you know, in, in many ways, I don't think necessarily unfolded very well. Um, and then secondly was to, uh, you know, to uh, you know, make sure that I wasn't, by going to the indoor game, um, kind of losing touch with, uh, you know, with the outdoor realities. Um, and, uh, and that's when, uh, Bob Gansler is another name you might remember. Bob, uh, was back in with the national team program. Uh, this was 19, now 1990. And, uh, and, you know, and I'm looking to make the team, to be a part of the team, to help it qualify. 
Um, and I have this, you know, little freak accident that happens when uh, I was up in Washington. I was, uh, our, our kids uh, were young. They were preschool at the time. And uh, we had them enrolled in a, in a uh, private uh, Christian school. And I was there helping do PE classes for them or to help do some, you know, coordination and uh, physical activity type of stuff because it was a new school and they hadn't hired a PE teacher and all that. I was available and had time. And as I was sitting there watching a couple of kids doing something and I'd squatted down, I felt this funny pop in my knee. And I thought, well, that's strange. So I went to stand up and I couldn't straighten my knee. Um, so the, the, you know, the U.S. soccer flew me down to Los Angeles. I had, uh, you know, what was dubbed a very minor knee operation to remove some cartilage that had gotten wedged in, you know, the knee joint. And, uh, you know, 10 days later was uh, in Florida for the first training camp with Bob Gansler and the team that ultimately was trying to qualify for the 90 World Cup. My knee swelled up. I couldn't compete. Um, and that was the beginning of the end. Uh, you know, I, I never was able to make it back fitness-wise. Um, the indoor league had fallen apart at that time, and so my options were to go play abroad or were to play in what was the re if you will, of the ASL, the American Soccer League. And there were a few teams around the country that were looking to have a season or two then. And uh, it just all didn't, you know, didn't work out. And, uh, and so uh, that, that ultimately was when I said, yeah, this is, uh, you know, the message from my God saying, Rick, it's time to, <laughs> time to hang it up. Well, and, but uh, and that's what I did. Well, but you, you, you've, you've, uh, you've handled that, uh, that, that uh, question rather gracefully because uh, it must have made you feel uh, full of pride and also a bit wistful um, to see that, uh, that team uh, qualify the U.S. national team for for the '90 uh, World Cup, knowing how much uh, time and effort and uh, and work that you put into that team during the bulk of that run up, uh, arguably with not as much uh, credit and and uh, and attention as uh, you know the shot heard round the world in Trinidad in 1989 got to get people's attention uh, for the first time. But that's I think it's a very interesting. Um, uh, commentary, but I, I think it's also, frankly, part of why uh, you are in that rarefied air of being uh, part of the U.S. Soccer Hall of Fame, right? At least a, 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 a large amount of recognition, not only for your uh, your play on on a star-studded Cosmos team, but but your um, uh, your contributions to and, and arguably away from the spotlight quite a bit uh, on the national team efforts. And and you know, all one has to do is look at the pomp and pageantry of a World Cup qualifier like we're going to experience tonight uh, to know that that players like you uh, in a time when it wasn't so obvious about the success of soccer in this country uh, were making it happen. So um, uh, kudos for your uh, uh, your wisdom, I guess, as you look back on, on some of these not so necessarily exciting times. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that and uh, thank you for it. But uh I also you know, say that, uh, that, that there's a lot of people that, that, that have done, you know, the same thing that I, you know, have. And, uh, you know, and, and because of, you know, the place the game was at then versus where it's at now, uh, you know, there maybe wasn't as much attention. But, uh, you know, for me, uh, you know, and even today, if there's anything that I can do to help our game grow and to develop and that includes players uh, both on the, the, the male and the female side, um, I'm, I am, count me and I am ready to help in any way I can because I, I love the sport. I love what, uh, you know, it represents both, uh, from a, 
uh, an individual person or, a, you know, a, a, an athletic development perspective. I love what the game represents around the world. And, uh, and I think that um, we're just now starting to be able to see some of that because so much of my exposure in the game was unique. And, uh, you know, and I, I would love to think other people can, can see it the you know, same way as well. Um, but in the end, um, you know, it's like what we will see tonight. I mean, I'm going to be glued to my television. I'm going to be the guy that's got the, you know, the, the red shirt and the white shorts and the blue socks on and, uh, you know, waving the flag and remembering the times that I played at Azteca and, uh, and loving every bit of it. All right, one last question, and then we, we promise to let you go because you do have a business to run as well as watch the game simultaneously. How you're going to do that, don't know, but good luck. Uh, how, um, I guess I'm really curious as to what you your thoughts are of the professional game here in the United States today. I, I got to assume that you once in a while get yourself over to uh, uh, see a Sporting Kansas City game. I guess that's the closest team to you. Um, I'm just curious as to... Can you imagine, based on where you were and what you did uh, in this country playing the sport, uh, could you have ever imagined that uh, the amount of uh, the quality of play, uh, the persistence and the uh, stability uh, of a league and, and, and minor leagues now? Um, I'm just curious as to what you think the state of the sport is professionally uh, and national team-wise here is in the United States, uh, given your uh, contributions to it in the past. Yeah, I, I think to start off with, without question, and you know, this is nothing I think uh, you know too earth-shattering. Uh, the game is in the best place it's ever been, um, certainly in my lifetime, at a professional level, at a youth level. And yeah, that's not to say that there aren't problems and challenges and things like that, because there are, and uh, and they you know they need to be addressed. And, you know, number one is, you know, we need to make the game more accessible to everybody, um, all communities, not just ones that you know, have resources or ones that, uh, you know, that have, uh, you know, the right people or whatever. Um, and so, you know, it's the same thing at the, you know, the professional level is, is you know, we need to make sure that, uh, you know, what we do with the game at the professional level still continues to address the fact that it, you know, it, it's a working man's game. Um, you know, it, it, uh, it, it's a game that is to be enjoyed by all. And, and I love what Major League Soccer has done. Back in 1995 or 96, oh, no, I didn't think that it was the way to go, the single entity concept and all of that, and, uh, and actually spoke out against it uh, because I didn't think so. But it's one of those where in life you got to look back and say, you know what, I'm wrong. Um, they've done a great job. I love what's, what's happened with the sport. And what really is, is beautiful in my eyes is the sporting Kansas City franchise and, and some of the people. Um, Peter Vermees mentioned his name before. Peter is heavily involved, uh, you know, coaching, president, uh, you know, he, he's the go-to guy at, uh, at the sporting franchise. It is so exhilarating to spend some time with him because Pete, too, understands the path, the growth, the challenges, the difficulties that the game has had in terms of establishing itself and growing here in the United States. And he just loves to talk about and to show off what sporting has and what they're doing and what they've become a part of in the Kansas City and greater area uh, community. And, and in that respect, um, it's one of those where, you know, when the Lord calls me and it's my time to go, um, I'm going to look back and say, you know what, the, the, the game has succeeded because if you look at what Major League Soccer has with their stadiums, 
if you look at the number of opportunities that people and or players have to be a part of as a player, uh, you know, at a high level as a fan to be able to go to the games that they do at the venues that they now have is just, you know, it, it almost couldn't have been imagined back in my, my generation of play. And so I, I love what I see. And, uh, and I think that uh, it's just going to get better and better. Well, Rick Davis, uh, this is why we have conversations like this, because uh, there are so many tremendous contributions that uh, are not necessarily uh, uh, remembered as uh, uh, as strongly as they should be. And uh, you are clearly a pioneer of the sport of soccer in this country. Um, I think most people in the sport remember that and recognize that. But uh, we also have a, a new generation of uh, young whippersnappers that uh, think that, uh, you know, MLS was the first uh, coming of soccer in this country and don't recognize a lot of the things that happened prior to it. And and I I honestly cannot thank you enough. Uh, You've been tremendous with your time and your, uh, uh, your, uh, your, your remembrances and your, uh, your candor. And um, I want to uh, remind all of our, our listeners and uh, you know, we're starting small. We've got, uh, we've got a few hundred uh, here and there that listen on a, on a weekly basis, but uh, we're, we're, we are, I can't I can't tell you how passionate people are, especially about uh, these soccer episodes. I mean, our Paul Gardner episode, I don't know if you've got a chance to listen to that a few weeks ago, um, you know, we, we, a few thousand listeners for that show. And it's, uh, it's pretty amazing how passionate people have become. Um, and um, uh, but I do want to remind people, if you're in the mid, if you're in the Midwest, you're in Kansas, the Ellsworth Steakhouse is where you want to go in Ellsworth, Kansas. Uh, is there a website for it, Rick, or do people just find it online for searching and whatnot? Uh, no, it is at ellsworthsteakhouse.com, and uh, you know, and it shows the menu, has some pictures and stuff like that. But uh, if you can find Ellsworth, you should not have any difficulty finding the steakhouse. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, if you if you mention this podcast, no, I'm not going to help you with your promotional efforts. I don't think you need it. <laughs> uh, and also, uh, foot pong, which uh, I think is really a cool uh, concept, and having seen my daughters uh, play the game and knowing a uh, skill of uh, of balancing and uh, ball control. And, and it's obviously, uh, you show some great stats there uh, on the site. That's footpong, F-U-T as in Tom, P as in Paul, O-N-G, footpong.net. Uh, we'll have links to that on the website and all that kind of stuff. Um, and uh, again, Rick, thank you for taking time. Uh, enjoy the game tonight. Let's hope it's the three points we need to get us over the hump. And um, again, I can't thank you enough for taking time to, uh, uh, to tell us uh, some of your stories and your history uh, for our podcast, uh, fledgling as it might be. Well, thank you for helping me have the opportunity to, to remember them all and, uh, and, and, you know, your recollections of them as well. And, uh, red, white, and blue tonight, guys. All right, there you have it. There's our chat with, uh, U.S. Soccer Hall of Famer, Rick Davis, who we thank tremendously for, uh, spending some time with us on our little podcast journey together. Um, you know, I was not expecting that uh, that little anecdote from uh, the uh, Team America episode uh, from 1983. And I think it's uh, indicative of, uh, of uh, a time when, you know, it wasn't necessarily a straight path uh, for American talent uh, on the soccer field as to where uh, they were best served. Were they better off staying with their club teams and, you know, making some decent coin and supporting their families? Uh, should they literally and figuratively have taken one for the team and 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 given that up to become part of a an experiment, a Team America experiment that uh, arguably would have uh, better prepared, or at least on paper was supposed to better prepare 
uh, our players to uh, succeed at the international level, both at the Olympics uh, and at the World Cup level, uh, or hell, even, you know, play abroad uh, for that matter. Would that be a better place? You know, some of those issues still linger today and uh, the debate about the quality of MLS versus European competition, et cetera. But I think, you know, it's really important to remember that back in the late 70s and early 80s, nothing was guaranteed. I mean, we have an embarrassment of soccer riches now by comparison. And, um, you know, for pioneers like Rick Davis, um, you know, without uh, without their travails and uh, and their um, uh, their actions and their uh, their work, um, you know, some of these uh, higher order problems we have today, uh, which just wouldn't be possible. So, you know, uh, it's partially why we do this podcast, uh, you know, the on the shoulders of greats uh, from which uh, today's modern um, soccer and modern professional sports sort of uh, rest. And uh, that's why we that's why we do these conversations. And uh, we thank again uh, Rick Davis for joining us. Uh, a, a reminder uh, for Rick, if you're uh, in the Ellsworth, Kansas area, and yes, that's literally in the middle of the state. So you'll probably be driving from one place to another. It's about two hours west, I think, of Kansas City. Uh, you want to go to the Ellsworth Steakhouse. Uh, and that's uh, Rick and his uh, wife's uh, place. He's been there for about four or five years. Uh, good food and, uh, to, and good times to be had by all. I am I am, uh, I am, am assured. It's the Ellsworth Steakhouse in Ellsworth, Kansas. I'm sure you could look it up online and, and find out uh, when they're open and their, uh, their tasty menu. I know that I will be at some point making a pilgrimage. So, uh, Rick, save me a seat. Uh, I will get there eventually. And I look forward to meeting you in person uh, to, uh, to regale us in... Uh, more stories uh, like we talked about today. Also, uh, you heard us mentioned uh, another uh, effort that Rick is uh, involved with. It's that uh, soccer uh, training system called footpong.net. It's actually called footpong. Uh, the website is footpong.net. That's F as in Frank, U-T as in Tom, P-O-N-G, pong.net, footpong.net. And uh, it's a great skill builder for uh, ball control and uh, any soccer player in your life will probably benefit from trying it out. So that's footpong, F-U-T-P-O-N-G dot net. Uh, and uh, you'll see a little video there from Rick and uh, and the inventors of such. And uh, again, we thank Rick for, for being part of our podcast. We thank you for being there uh, in our listening audience. And uh, just a quick reminder, if you want to uh, catch up on anything about this show, uh, if you want to find out more about uh, a guest or uh, download uh, uh, some audio or some video or check out a book that we may, we may have recommended. GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. That's our website, GoodSeatsStillAvailable.com. Follow us on Twitter at GoodSeatsStill. Uh, you'll find us on Instagram at GoodSeatsStillAvailable. And you will also find a Facebook page devoted to the show as well. Uh, either way, we look forward to uh, hearing from you. Thank you for your suggestions, your comments, and most importantly, for giving us a listen and uh, spending some time with us. My name is Tim Hanlon. You know the name of the show. We appreciate your listening. And uh, until next time, good night, everybody.